Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Drugs and vaccines for COVID-19 are appearing faster than ever. But are governments approving them too easily? The clear message to any other government is don't start jabbing your citizens with vaccines that are not properly tested. It's just not worth it. Hello and welcome to Babbage from Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Kukie, a senior editor at The Economist. And coming up on today's show, Elon Musk's quest to wire a computer into the human brain. What they demonstrated the other night was a device that can record from 1,024 of these little wires, about 1,000 brain cells. And every breath you take. Just by breathing this way, over a couple of minutes, you can really feel this change in your body. But first, any new and effective vaccine will be given emergency approval by the British government, which aims to move with unprecedented speed. In America, Donald Trump has promised to deliver a vaccine before the end of the year. Yet this week, he said the administration will not work with a World Health Organization-linked effort to develop or distribute a COVID-19 vaccine. While drugs and vaccines are vital to controlling COVID-19, the WHO warned that a vaccine that is only moderately effective could actually worsen the pandemic. On August 11th, Vladimir Putin of Russia declared victory. His government made the claim that it was the world's first to approve a vaccine, Sputnik V. This involves injecting people with a harmless virus that has been modified to express one of the proteins made by SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19. The approach is similar to other vaccine candidates around the world that are in trials. But the speed of Sputnik V's use raises troubling issues. We know very little about the testing of this vaccine, such as how long it was tested for, but it can't have been for long because it was given to only 76 people. Natasha Loder is The Economist health policy editor. The results of the tests have not been published. The Russians say they've also tested the vaccine on animals. Those results have not been published either. And so really we have an information vacuum about it, except for what the institute that did the studies have said to us, which is very little. How did that come to be approved so quickly? Well, I mean, the Russian government simply decided that it didn't need to go through the sorts of normal trials that you would expect of a vaccine. It redrew the finishing line. You know, there are a lot of COVID vaccines around the world going through what are called phase three trials. And the purpose of phase three trials is that you give them to thousands and thousands of people and you find out firstly if the vaccine works and secondly, if in thousands of people, it's 
still safe. It's not until you test it in thousands of people that you really get a good signal in a large number of people as to sort of whether it is really well tolerated. So I suppose there is a thing called best practices in drug development, and they're not actually adhering to it. Yes, absolutely. But the Russians are not the only ones who've been doing this, and they may not have even been the first. Earlier this year, one of our correspondents in Beijing had told us that he'd heard anecdotal reports that airport workers were being given a Chinese vaccine. And the sort of reports that we're hearing now from China that some workers in state-owned industries had been given a vaccine, seem to agree with those sort of anecdotal reports we were hearing. So I think it's quite clear that some countries are willing to relax the normal requirements for medicine safety in order to just move quickly. Now, that's not something that we should expect to see in countries and regions with regulatory agencies that are much more independent of their governments. I mean, if you think about the governments of Russia and China, you know, they have much more of a stranglehold, if you like, over the regulatory agencies. One would hope that the regulatory agencies in other countries have a bit more spine and will wait the results of phase three trials. That is a bare minimum for us to move ahead safely with vaccine development. So what's the problem of rushing it? Well, the problem is the vaccine could be unsafe. And there's a couple of ways in which a vaccine could be unsafe. One, it could come with side effects that are damaging or dangerous. You do get rare neurological conditions triggered. The other concern is something called vaccine-enhanced disease. This is where you give someone a vaccine And instead of lowering the risk that someone gets sick or dies from a disease, it actually increases it. And, you know, we've seen signs of vaccine enhanced diseases in drug development in the past. It's not particularly common, but it is something that can happen. And that is why you put vaccines through phase three trials. You need to rule out that problem. You need to make sure that The vaccine that you give to someone is not going to give them side effects and it's not going to make COVID-19 worse. Now, it's not just Russia or China that's been rapidly approving vaccines and drugs without adequate trials. On August 23rd, President Trump announced approval of the use of convalescent plasma therapy to treat COVID-19. The FDA has issued an emergency use authorization for a treatment known as convalescent plasma How does that work and why was that rushed too? So convalescent plasma is essentially you take blood from people who've recovered from COVID-19 and you extract out the antibodies that they've made in their own blood in something called plasma and then you give it to someone who's sick. And plasma therapy has been used for over 100 years and it works in some diseases and not in others. We do think that convalescent plasma is a promising therapy. There's no question about it. And there are trials going on all over the planet. But as yet, they haven't been very conclusive and it's still seen as an experimental therapy. And President Trump described this as a very historic breakthrough. This is what I've been looking to do for a long Long time. This is a great thing. Today, I'm pleased to make a truly historic announcement in our battle. But is it? The FDA has, you know, looked at the results of one trial 
and said, there's enough evidence to authorize it for use. It's not a sort of formal drug approval. And, you know, there's a couple of problems with this. One is that the evidence is really poor. It's not a randomized controlled trial at all. There was no placebo group. It's just a two-arm trial where some patients were given convalescent plasma sooner than others. And some people are concerned that the group that had the higher mortality actually had more sicker patients in it. And that's one of the problems when you're not doing a randomized controlled trial. Another one of the issues is really that it was just so badly handled by the FDA. The head of the FDA got up and announced that 35 people of every 100 treated with convalescent plasma would be saved. And that number was just completely wrong. He had gotten his statistics wrong. He'd confused relative and absolute risk. And, you know, the actual figure was more like three lives saved. Of course, that's worth having, but it certainly isn't a very historic breakthrough. And, you know, we really do need to kind of wait for proper randomized controlled trials to really answer the question of whether this therapy works. Natasha, it seems like there's a real paradox here, because in the midst of the pandemic, we want governments to act quickly. But here, we think they're doing it wrong. How do we square the circle? How can we have it both ways, speed plus regulatory muster? Well, we have got speed. That's the kind of insane thing, is that we're you know, moving incredibly rapidly. And the results of phase three trials for vaccines could come in in the next three or four weeks. Nobody's ever moved this quickly. And so what I would say is that every legitimate step has been taken to accelerate the speed with which drugs and vaccines have moved. And what people are complaining about now is that these are unreasonable steps and that essentially governments are behaving in slightly a risky fashion. And they're doing so for political reasons. If the British government or the Europeans wanted to accelerate drugs and vaccines like this, they could, but they haven't. And why is that? Well, nobody here is coming up for re-election in November, as Mr. Trump is. Or in China, they may wish, or Russia, they may wish to sort of show what strong, powerful countries they are and how they're taking care of their citizens. I mean, there's all sorts of political dimensions to the sort of moves that have been made. Natasha Loder, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Ken. And for more on the pandemic and a wide-ranging look at a fast-changing world, subscribe to The Economist. Go to economist.com slash podcast offer for the best introductory offer and the link is in the show notes. Again, that's economist.com slash podcast offer. And don't forget to tell them Ken sent you. Next up, pandemic or no, 2020 has been a bumper year for Elon Musk. In May, SpaceX became the first private company ever to send humans into orbit, while over the past eight months, Tesla's market capitalization has more than quadrupled, making it the most valuable car company on the planet. Last Friday, another Musk venture, the neurotechnology company Neuralink, which aims to connect a computer into the human brain, notched up what seems to be another win with a public demonstration of its technology at use in pigs. All right, welcome to the Neuralink product demo. I'm really excited to show you what we've got. I think it's going to blow your mind. Uh, True to form, the demo captured the public imagination and trended wildly online. 
But is a computer-enhanced human brain really within reach? The Neuralink team is working on um, what's called a brain-machine interface, and um, that involves electrodes, uh, very small wires placed into the brain to record the electrical activity uh, from brain cells. Andrew Jackson is a professor of neural interfaces at Newcastle University. And what they demonstrated the other night was a device that they've built that can record from 1,024 of these little wires, so about 1,000 brain cells. And that activity is processed by an implant uh, that sits uh, inside the skull and then relays that activity wirelessly out to a receiver. And in the case of Neuralink's pig, Gertrude, I think her name was, what activity specifically was being detected and relayed? In the pig that we saw, the electrodes were uh, placed in um, a, a sensory part of the brain um, related to the pig's snout. Um, so what you're, the, the beeps you're hearing are real-time signals from the neural link in Gertrude's head. So this neural link... And so what we heard was the activity of sensory neurons that were relaying information about the, the pig sniffing at various objects. They also showed a video, I, I think, that they had recorded from brain cells in the motor area of the, of the brain. Uh, when we have, um, say, um, one of our pigs on a treadmill, <laughs> pig on a treadmill, <laughs> um, Funny concept, really. Um, and in that video, they were suggesting that they were able to infer the movement of the, the pig's legs on a treadmill uh, from listening to these brain signals. And in classic Elon Musk style, this has been very snazzily presented and garnered a lot of attention. But from your perspective, as someone who's been working a lot in this field as an academic, is there anything particularly new or innovative about what Neuralink has done with this technology? I think what they've done a, a nice job on is um, a lot of the engineering of the device itself. Um, so uh, to some extent, I think they've made a lot of progress in the areas that perhaps you might expect a, a tech company um, well-resourced to make, make progress on. So, so previously, a lot of the work that has been done in animals and also um, some work that has been done using these techniques in humans has tended to use uh, cables connecting the electrodes in the brain uh, through the skin to large um, racks of equipment, um, um, computers and so forth powered from the mains um, in order to uh, process and make sense of this data. Um, and what they've done um, is taken a lot of that electronics, shrunk it down, made it low power um, and, and enabling it to be placed within the, the skull and relaying these signals um, wirelessly. The other thing that they showed, which I think is very nice, is a, a robot, a bit like a sewing machine, um, to, to insert these electrodes and, and apparently automatically avoid blood vessels to, to do a minimal amount of damage. So I think all of this is, is very impressive. I think where I am, am more sceptical is the, the claims that they're making of being able to um, sort of read thoughts and enhance brain function um, through this technology, um, there's, there's quite a big gap between being able to record these brain cells compared to some of the claims that became rather more outlandish about being able to read thoughts and, and, and read memories and things like that. Because to some extent, that requires much more progress in actually understanding how these signals relate to, to complex uh, mental and cognitive functions. 
does this have the markings of a turf war between academics and entrepreneurs? Because I know that Elon Musk recently responded to a news report in which your own criticisms of Neuralink had been quoted, and he said basically that his view is academics overweight ideas and underweight bringing them to fruition, or less kindly, that they're all talking no trousers. What do you say to that? So I, I, I think it would be very unfortunate if, if this ends up being a, a sort of tribal argument. Elon Musk, I'm sure, recognizes that he's following in the footsteps of some very pioneering work in the academic um, field that that really pushed the idea of brain-machine interfaces forward out of um, basic uh, fundamental neuroscience research into practical uh, demonstrations of devices that could help people with with spinal cord injury. Um, I think that from the the academic point of view, um, we ought to see this as a success story that a a technology that for a long time has been being developed in in the academic um, research arena is capturing the attention of of um, neurotechnology uh, companies. So I, I I I did not mean to in any of the comments that I made. I didn't mean to um, turn this into a turf war. I think that we would all um, we would all benefit from from the exchange of ideas and, and and working together. You heard it here first. Turf war averted. And Professor Jackson, to end with a look forward, Musk has said that the ultimate goal of Neuralink is to usher in an age of quote superhuman cognition. In your view, does that claim, that view of the future, really belong in the realm of science fiction, as far ahead as we currently see? So I think it's very hard to judge these things. I think that clearly Elon Musk likes big ideas and he likes big kind of visions. Um, I think that at the moment, the state of the technology at present um, is that there hasn't really been demonstrated, and I think it'll be quite a while before anyone demonstrates a cognitive enhancement using uh, this kind of brain-machine interface technology. That doesn't mean we shouldn't try, and that doesn't mean that there's probably not a lot of very interesting science and maybe all sorts of other benefits that we will get along the way. Um, But I think it's important to be uh, somewhat kind of modest and accepting of the fact that there's still an awful lot we don't understand about the, the brain, how the brain works and how intelligence works. Professor Andrew Jackson, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. And finally, in and out. In and out. Most of us take our breathing almost entirely for granted. Like the beating of the heart or the work of the digestive system, 
It feels like a process that's being taken care of by the body beyond the need of any conscious attention. But this may not be the case. In his latest book, Breath, The New Science of a Lost Art, James Nestor argues that our species has actually lost the ability to breathe correctly and that reconnecting with ancient and largely forgotten breathing practices could bring about a host of benefits, both mental and physical. The one estimate I heard was that 80% of the population has some sort of dysfunction in their breathing. These people don't necessarily have sleep apnea or snoring, even though a large percentage of the population has that, but many of them maybe breathe too much or struggle to breathe a little too much, or their noses are constantly plugged up. And once they fix those issues, they can find how beneficial and therapeutic healthy breathing really is. Let's go right there. Why is breathing so important? It's something that we do 25,000 times a day. And if we aren't doing it properly, our bodies have to constantly compensate. For instance, I've heard uh, one estimate of about a quarter of the population suffers from chronic over-breathing. We breathe way more than our bodies actually need. And if we're constantly doing that, we're causing a lot of wear and tear on our heart and other systems. So if you think about it, if you're in a car and you're just revving at every stoplight, eventually that's going to cause a lot of wear and tear on that car and on the engine. And our bodies, in many ways, work the exact same way. Did we ever do it well? Did we ever breathe in the best way possible? And if we did, how did we ever stop or forget? Well, it's hard to test breathing from ancient populations. But what we can do is we can look at the skeleture of all of these ancient faces and all of these mouths. And what we find is that people about 500 years ago, when industrialization of food really started ramping up, they had these huge jaws, these huge mouths and these forward growing faces. So they had larger airways and their nasal apertures were much larger than ours. And that's why ancient people didn't have crooked teeth. About 90% of the modern population has some sort of misalignment or crookedness in their teeth. That's because we have smaller mouths. And with that smaller mouth, we have a smaller airway, which is one of the reasons we have so many chronic breathing problems right now. How does one breathe properly? What scientists have found is that a very good resting breathing rate is about six breaths, five breaths per minute. That's about five to six seconds in, five to six seconds out. When you do this, all of the systems in the body start to synchronize. Your heart rate's going to slow down. It's going to beat more easily. Your blood pressure is going to go down if you have high blood pressure. And all of this allows the body to do what it naturally wants to do more easily over an extended amount of time. And just by breathing this way over a couple of minutes, you can really feel this change in your body. You can imagine if you do that for a couple of days or a couple of weeks or a couple of months. And that's what I went out to, to find people who had done that and had really transformed their health in some miraculous way. <sighs> oh, James, that was incredible. That's about the worst way you can possibly <laughs> breathe. <laughs> okay. So um, I I have tried singing Ava Maria and breathing as well. And it seems like that really did slow me down. Explain to me what's going on with that. Well, you're a good Catholic. Um, So what the scientists did about 20 years ago is they looked at different prayers. They looked at the Ave Maria. They looked at Sata Nama, which is a Kundalini mantra. They looked at Om Mani Padmi Ham, which is a Buddhist mantra, one of the most famous Buddhist mantras of all. And they found that all of these prayers locked 
in at that same about five to six breaths per minute because that's about the, the mean of all of these different prayers. And they hypothesize that these prayers, not just for the religious method, but because they place the body in this state of peace and then allowed all the systems of the body to work at peak efficiency. Now, you experimented on yourself for the book, or at least you took part in research by plugging up your nostrils for days on end. Tell me about this. Yeah, just hearing that gives me a little PTSD. So I had been working with the chief of rhinology research down at Stanford, and we had had many conversations, and he's a nose guy. So he was saying that, you know, the nose is this miraculous organ. We're not using it as much as we should, and because we're not using it, we could be suffering from all of these health problems, on and on and on. I said, well, how soon does the damage from mouth breathing come on. And he didn't know because no one had tested it. So we developed this little experiment where uh, me and one other subject were to plug our noses and just breathe through our mouths for 10 days. And I know that this sounds like some sort of clowny jackass stunt, but that wasn't the intention because 50% of the modern population chronically breathes through its mouth. So we were really lulling ourselves into a state that my body already knew and that most of the population already knew, but testing it. And within a day, I went from not snoring to snoring. Uh, we both got sleep apnea. My blood pressure went through the roof. I mean, I could give you a whole laundry list of other problems. Now, for listeners who want to improve their health and through their breathing, how quickly does this transformation take place? If we start being conscious and practicing nasal breathing, when can we start becoming more charismatic, handsome, richer, and thinner? <laughs> I can't guarantee any of those things, but if you can place your hand safely, don't do this while driving, over your heart and take an inhale in to a count of about five or six, and then to exhale, and keep exhaling to five, six, maybe seven or eight, you're going to feel your heart rate slow down. And you're going to feel, if you keep doing this, take another very slow inhale in and a longer exhale, you're going to probably feel some circulation to your fingers and your toes. You're going to be getting more oxygen to your brain. So this transformation that I just led you through happened in about 15 seconds. So if you're able to control your breathing and do it in a healthy way and allow your body to work so efficiently, these problems, so many problems attached to allergies and asthma, and they found even with autoimmune disease and anxiety and depression, the symptoms of these problems can be abated. And in some cases, people no longer report suffering from them. I know these sound like huge claims, but this is coming from leaders in the field at top institutions. James Nestor, thank you very much. This was a breath of fresh air. Thank you for having me. And thank you for listening to Babbage. While you're with us, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I'm Kenneth Couquier, and in London, where I'm breathing in five-second intervals, this is The Economist. This is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business 
to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.